The reading today is Matthew 22, 15-46. Uh, you can found in the Bibles in front of you on page 827. So starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. And please be seated. And please pray with me as we look into God's word. Gracious Father, how many times we're reminded in a week that we live in a fallen and broken world. As we've just sung, Lord, there are so many trials, so many difficulties, so many different things we carry with us, even as we gather here this morning. Different burdens on our hearts, different questions we're asking. Lord, we pray that you would take each 
of these questions, each of these burdens, each of the joys that we carry with us here this morning, and that you would fold all of them into the cross, that we would see them in light of Jesus. As we look into your word, may you open our eyes to see him more clearly. Would you give us ears to hear your voice through your word, by your spirit, and would you fill our hearts with Christ? Fill our hearts with love. Fill our hearts with your spirit that we might love and honor you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's always risky uh, to consider yourself an expert in a particular subject, uh, whether it's business or music or movies or cars or medicine, whatever it is, because invariably somebody comes along and asks a single question, and all of a sudden you realize you don't know that subject half as well as you thought you did 30 seconds ago. Uh, that's kind of what an ordination exam is like for pastors. Uh, if I don't know how familiar you are with the world of, of how all of that works, and it differs quite a bit depending on which tradition or denomination and such you're in. I was ordained through College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, just before, which is the church we served at before we came. In fact, my ordination supervisor is actually with us this morning, uh, Jay Thomas and his wife Rebecca and their kids uh, visiting. Uh, so if there's any problems you have found with me in the last three years, you can pretty much safely blame Jay for that, and uh, that works well. But kind of the, the way that process works, though, is, uh, and again, it, it, it differs depending on your tradition, but you spend months, if not years, studying a whole range of topics that might have something to do with life and pastoral ministry. And so you're studying Bible, theology, uh, pastoral care, uh, church history, church polity, all of these different things. And, and that's usually combined with a sort of practical experience aspect and spiritual development. And you take all of that season of study and then you boil it down into a paper. And that paper you then defend orally before a board of seasoned pastors and elders and seminary professors and denominational representatives and whoever. And they uh, have the right to ask you pretty much any question they want as it pertains to life and pastoral ministry. They ask you, obviously, questions from your paper, but stuff that should have been in your paper and isn't in your paper and all those kinds of things. And, and so by the time you go into your exam, you are supposed to be a kind of expert on pastoral ministry. And a lot of ordination candidates actually believe that about themselves going into that exam. I felt pretty good going into mine overall. Jay prepared me well. Uh, and, and overall, the, the exam went pretty well. But all it takes is one question for you to realize you don't know your subject half as well as you thought you did when you entered that room. And for me, uh, it was a question about the pre-incarnate Christ that honestly, I had to have somebody explain the question to me after the exam because it just <laughs> completely over my head. So that experience of, of kind of having your self-professed expert status shattered by a single question, that's pretty much what we see happening in our passage this morning in the debate that we began looking at last week in Matthew 22 between Jesus and all of the religious leaders and experts in the law. 
Last week, we looked at 15 through 33, and, and we kind of described it as, as a two-on-one tennis match between the Pharisees and the Sadducees on one side, kind of firing their questions across the court to Jesus on the other side. And the topic of debate was Jesus's wisdom and authority as a teacher of God's word. And so if you'll notice, every single time they fire a question at him, they address him as teacher. Teacher in verse 16, verse 24, verse 36. They are challenging what Jesus teaches. Because if he's really the Messiah, God's promised anointed king, which is what the whole book of Matthew has been trying to demonstrate so far, then his words ought to line up with God's word in the Old Testament. And so they're challenging him on his teaching, even though we find out, really, they could care less what his answers are. They're not really interested in what he has to say. They're simply looking for an opportunity to publicly discredit him, to make him look either stupid in front of the crowd so that they kind of lose their awe over him, or to get him to say something scandalous so that they can accuse him and get him arrested and removed from the picture. And so... uh, Last week, we watched the Pharisees, together with the Herodians, serve up that first question in verses 15 to 22. It was a question testing Jesus on the topic of loyalty according to Scripture. You know, can you pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman Roman emperor, and still be loyal to your covenant God? That was the challenge. And it was a trap. Uh, Either way, if Jesus answered that, he was going to get himself in trouble. And so it looked like, you know, an ace on the serve, but then Jesus fires back his unexpected uh, point, showing him how if you're already using Caesar's currency, then you're already playing Caesar's game. And so give back to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him, which because he's the king of the universe means everything. And so Jesus scores that first point. Then we looked at the Sadducees taking their turn on the serve in verses 23 to 33. And their question was to test Jesus on the topic of hope, according to Scripture. You'll remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They firmly denied the resurrection, which is the hope that in the end, God will defeat death and raise from the dead all who belong to him to join him in the new world that he's making. The Sadducees flat out denied that. They attempted to mock that belief and to mock Jesus along with it. But again, Jesus returned that serve, and he showed them how they're wrong because they know neither the scriptures, which actually do point to the resurrection, nor the power of God, which makes the resurrection possible. And so Jesus shuts down uh, their attack and, and is demonstrating throughout this that, that nobody really can match Jesus's understanding of the scriptures. They're trying these religious leaders to make him look like a fool. They're only making him look good with each question. But they're not done. And so as we pick up the story this morning in verse 34, it's the Pharisees' turn to serve once again. And they're firing another question at him and this time their topic is the law according to scripture. The law according to scripture. That's what they're going to test Jesus on. So again, if if you've got your Bibles in front of you, which I encourage you to uh, find verse 34, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, and follow along with me uh, as we look at uh, verses 34 to 36 here. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So they kind of, you can picture the proverbial huddle. Okay, what's our game plan now, guys? And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So again, from the way the narrator describes it, we know they're not interested at all in Jesus' real answer to this. They're, They're not interested in learning from him. I mean, after all, they're the experts. They, they are the ones who have all of the answers to these kinds of things. And, and so Jesus is the one who has to take the exam and see if he measures up according to their standard. In fact, the word that's translated lawyer in the ESV uh, translations, which we have on the screen or in the, in the pew, is often translated expert in the law in other versions. And so that's kind of their, their sense. They are experts in the law of Moses. So it's not lawyer the way we think of it today, but experts in the law of Moses, people who are skilled in their knowledge and ability to navigate the covenant that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And so their goal is not to learn, but to test Jesus. And this is the test. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And there are actually several different opinions about that question in the first century. Uh, some of them would answer Habakkuk uh, 2.4 or, or, or different a variety of opinions. But Jesus' answer here, as one scholar puts it, was so traditional that nobody could challenge it, and yet so deeply searching that everyone would be challenged by it. Think about that. Look at verses 37 to 40, Jesus' answer. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So traditional, no one can disagree, and yet so deeply searching that nobody can ignore that answer. Uh, Jesus answers the question about the great commandment with two commandments. One is is primary, uh, the first one, but then the second one flows directly out of it, and you have to have both of them. And so the first one Jesus gives is what Jews would have known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And then it goes on to give instructions about laying the law on your heart and so on. But but those verses, faithful Jews would have recited those verses every morning and every evening as kind of a a prayer and a summary of their faith and practice. So this was a very well-known central verse for Israel's faith. And the second command that Jesus gives comes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So both of those verses would have been very familiar, not just to to the religious leaders, but to any Jew in Jesus' day. And putting them together gives a, a comprehensive view of what it means to keep God's law, what it means to walk really in accord with all of Scripture, 
uh, as Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you get these two right, you're going to get the rest of the commandments right. If you miss either of these two, you're going to miss the rest of them as well. That's what he's saying. You can hang the moral weight of all of their commands on these two. Jesus' answer reiterates the fact that he's the perfect teacher of the law. The Pharisees are asking a question trying to make him look bad. Jesus' answers just make him look even better each time. But even though the Pharisees weren't interested in his answers, they weren't looking to learn anything from him, it doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn from his answer. And so I want to take a couple minutes just to think through what is it that Jesus is saying here about uh, the law, about the word of God and what it looks like and means to walk with God in obedience. Uh, What he says here has been considered by some to be the moral and ethical heart of Christianity. So you take every instruction in the Old Testament. Again, law and prophets is a shorthand way of saying all of the Old Testament. You take all of the ethical or moral instructions of the Old Testament, and then by extension, you can add to that the New Testament moral instructions because those flow very naturally out of the Old Testament's vision. So basically, all of the commands of Scripture, take all of them, and you can hang their weight on just these two verses. That's what Jesus is saying. If you get these two, you will get the rest of them. And so it's worthwhile to think about, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, if that's what it looks like ultimately to live a life that honors God as his people? So what is he saying? What is he not saying? And what does that mean for us? First, it means that obedience is a matter of love. That's the first thing I think we learn from what Jesus is saying here, that obedience is a matter of love. I think one of the most shocking things about Jesus' statement here is that he's talking about commandments and rules and laws, and he's saying that what those are really about is love. We don't tend to put obedience and love in the same sentence. We tend to kind of keep those things separated, that that rule-keeping is is kind of this legalistic duty that we might have, whereas love is just kind of this ushy-gushy, anything-goes, or or something like that. Rule-keeping is what slaves to the law do, but we are free in Christ, right? We're free from rules, right? Isn't that what Paul or Jesus meant? No, not according to Jesus here. Obedience matters to God. Jesus isn't doing away with the moral standards for God's people. Obedience matters to God. God is holy, and he's made us and saved us that we might be holy as well, that we might be set apart for him and his purposes, that we might reflect his holy character, which he has revealed to us in his word, in the scriptures. And so obedience to God's word matters, but... It is ultimately a matter of love. Think about that. So in other words, the purpose of all of the commandments or instructions that we find in Scripture is not to kind of weigh us down 
and keep us in check and, and, and just you know, pile on the guilt and the shame and so on. It's not to make us slaves. Those rules and instructions are there to show us what love looks like. Have you ever thought of God's law in that perspective before? Oh, this is what it looks like to love God or to love my neighbor. That's the purpose of the law. True obedience to God flows out of a love relationship with God. And if we love God, that love will show itself in obeying God. When Carissa calls me up and asks me to stop at the grocery store on the way home and pick something up, I don't do it because I'm afraid if I don't do it, I'm going to somehow be rejected or out on the curb that night or something like that, or, or she's going to, you know, she's just trying to manipulate me and keep me down. Do it because I love her and because it's a way of helping her. And so this whole idea, it's very similar with the Lord. You know, obeying God is not this heartless duty of going through the motions, but it's about affection. It's about loyalty. It's about delighting in our God and our Savior. The sum of God's law is love. Now, when Jesus says that here, it doesn't mean that none of the other commandments matter. So he's not saying, just focus on these two and ignore everything else. Uh, No, instead, if you keep these two, you will be keeping everything else. That's his point. Nor is he saying that some of the commands that we find kind of awkward or slightly embarrassing or out of fashion, uh, that we can just kind of ignore those or overturn those in the name of love, as you often hear today, Uh, certain commands about sex or marriage or leadership are unloving. And so if we follow the trajectory of God's love, we should ignore those commands now. But you can't pit God's word against itself. And you can't assume that our definition and standard of love is the same as God's. God knew what he was doing when he gave us his word, and, and we should give God the benefit of the doubt when it doesn't make sense. Now, I mean, you look, at, you look at the Old Testament, and obviously you will find lots of commands that we don't obey in the exact same form that they were given, especially you look at the law of Moses. But the reason is not because, oh, those were unloving, and so let's now leave those out and move on. It's because they were fulfilled by Jesus. And so they apply to us in a very different way now that Christ has come. So Jesus is... He's the perfect teacher. He's also the ultimate fulfillment of God's word. And and he shows us here that obedience is a matter of love. That's the first thing we need to understand from his instructions here. The second is that love for God is holistic. It's all-encompassing. Love for God is holistic. Uh, Loving God is something that we do with our whole being and our whole life. When Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, it's not giving us a lesson on the different parts of the human psyche and so on. It's taking a pileup of words to refer to basically everything that you are, love God with that. Soul, mind, strength, and you just keep adding to that list if you want, if that helps you get the point. Love God with everything that you are. There is a huge temptation for us to compartmentalize our life and our faith. 
to do the opposite of what this verse is saying. So to basically say, okay, this part of my life I'm going to give to God, my, my Sunday morning shtick and my, you know, maybe the midweek group or evening devotions or, or whatever it is, that part is for God. And then this part of life is for me or for my career or for my family or something else. And as long as I'm doing good with God over here, it doesn't really have much to do with over here. And that is our default mode uh, as fallen sinful human beings. We compartmentalize these things. That is the opposite of what God is saying, of what Jesus is saying in these verses. All of life belongs to God. So family, work, church, social life, personal life, social media life, whatever, all of it belongs to God. As a Dutch reformer, Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Think about that. Mine. All of life. Every square inch of our hearts, every conversation we have at work, every text that we send, everything that our eyes look at, every thought that passes our mind. Obeying God, treating God like God means loving him, means honoring him, delighting in him with all that we are and all that we have. It's all of life. It's holistic. And for that reason, then, third, love for God cannot be separated from love for neighbor. Love for God cannot be separated from our love for neighbor. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't stop with Deuteronomy 6.5. He could have, because if you're keeping Deuteronomy 6.5, you're going to be doing all the rest of it. But he, he goes to the effort to explicitly say, and love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot claim to love God if you do not also at the same time love your neighbor. You just can't separate the two. And it's interesting, if you, if you think of the Ten Commandments in, in the Law of Moses, so... Uh, those are familiar to many of us here. You can find them in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. But the Ten Commandments are often divided in what's called the two tablets. And the first tablet, the first four commandments, are very vertical. So they are Godward in their orientation. You shall have no other gods before me. You, will, uh, you should not make a graven image or take God's name in vain. You remember the Sabbath. So they're very Godward in direction. The second tablet, commands 5 through 10, are very horizontal. So Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. And, and both of those tablets work together to give a holistic picture of what it means to love God and love neighbor. It's honoring and guarding for God what rightfully belongs to him. Our worship, our devotion, all of life centered around his order and honoring and guarding for one another what rightfully belongs to them. Don't take somebody else's wife. Don't take somebody else's stuff. That rightfully belongs to them, and to love them is to guard and protect that. And so, so you have to have both of those. If you're saying, I love God, but you're not doing those things over there, then you're not honoring God very well, are you? It's pretty simple logic. Uh, John puts it a little bit more harshly in First John 4.20, when he says, if anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he's a liar. For who does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So, so we have, you can't separate those two. Uh, we love God, and, and one of the ways we love God is by loving our neighbor. And that's, that goes for people within the congregation and for people without of the congregation on the outside. That goes for, for friends and strangers. We show our love for God by honoring and loving one another. And, and that might be coming alongside them in very tangible ways, you know, meeting needs. Uh, it, it might be opening God's word with them, just offering to pray with them. Whatever it is that's going to help them make much of God, that's ultimately the goal of love. It's not to make much of your friend, to help them with their self-esteem or something like that. It's to help them with what's best, and that's to know and enjoy God. And so what's going to help me connect them, help them connect to God? That's what I'm after in love. And it might be something as simple as a cup of coffee or something uh, as, as uh, regular as getting together and opening God's word weekly. How do I come alongside this person in love? How do I show my affection for God by loving my neighbor? That's the heart of the Bible's moral vision. That obedience is a matter of love. That love for God is holistic. It is all-encompassing, every part of life. And that you can't separate love for God from love for neighbor. So on these two commands, Jesus says, you can hang the full weight of all the ethical vision of Scripture. Loving God and loving neighbor. Now, coming back to the debate... Matthew doesn't tell us how the expert in the law reacted to this very wise answer. Um, But Mark does, Mark's gospel. And we know from Mark's gospel that the expert was quite impressed. Uh, We also know that even after Jesus answered the question, that the expert in the law still considered himself an expert. Uh, You don't have to flip there. Uh, It'll be up on the screen behind me, but Mark chapter 12, verses 32 to 34. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's kind of, you know, Good for you for agreeing with me is kind of the spirit of, of the expert's reaction there. But listen to Jesus' reply to him. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like a compliment at first. And it is in a sense. Jesus saw an amount of wisdom in the guy's answer. But think about how an expert in the law would receive a comment like that. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far? That means not in. An expert in the law outside of God's kingdom. There's something that this expert is missing. And Jesus is about to show us what it is with a single question. As the debate continues, 
Again, Matthew skips the expert's reaction and just moves directly into Jesus' counter-response in verses 41 to 46. It's now Jesus' chance to serve. And he gets to pick the topic, and he gets to ask the question. And he does so in verse 41. The topic he selects is the Messiah according to Scripture. The Messiah according to Scripture. So look at verse 41 with me. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked him a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Now, if you remember, the the word Christ is simply a Greek version of the Hebrew word that we get Messiah from. And both of those mean anointed one. So the anointed king that the Old Testament promised who would come and rescue God's people and put down God's enemies and make right everything that's wrong in this world, that's the Messiah, the Christ. And, and Jesus asks, you know, whose, whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? Well, that's easy. David's son. I mean, everybody, every Jew would have known that. I mean, you look at 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34. I mean, they're kind of saying, is that all you got? You know, come on, really hit us, you know. And so, you know, verse 43 comes the zinger. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And listen to the reaction. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So everyone's standing around that temple court tennis court, if you use the analogy. Everyone's standing around it. Everyone on there firing the questions. They all thought that they were experts on this. And in a single question, Jesus silences them and sends them home. Jesus is the perfect teacher of God's word. They can't hold a candle to him. And yet, he's much more than that. And that's what's at stake, ultimately, in the question that he asks the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were unable to see because of their self-centered and limited categories. So the Messiah is David's son. Jesus is not denying that. But he's so much more than David's son. And if they knew their Bibles half as well as they thought they did, they would have realized that. To make his point, Jesus takes them to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it's a passage that was widely recognized as being messianic, so pointing forward to the Messiah, telling us what to expect in some way about this coming king. So Jesus points them there, and he emphasizes the truthfulness of this psalm and the authority of it by pointing out that when David wrote it, he did it in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So, so when David's speaking, this has the authority of God here. And then he points out something that no doubt most people had never actually just stopped to ask. 
if the Messiah is David's son, a mere descendant of David to come, why does David call him Lord, Master, King? How can this coming king reign over David in some way? Now, keep your finger in Matthew, and if you, if you don't mind, go ahead and flip back to Psalm 110. We'll look at, at this psalm just for a moment. If you kind of split your Bible in half, you have a good chance of landing in the near vicinity there. Psalm 110. It starts with a little superscript, we call that, the, the small print above verse 1. It says, a psalm of David. That tells us David is the author of this psalm. And it goes, the Lord, which is Yahweh, the proper name of God, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this king is going to come from David, but there's a sense in which he's before David and above David at the same time. He's David's Lord and master. The Lord said to my Lord. And this Lord, who's above David, is going to be sitting at God's right hand in heaven. That's a big picture of a king. And so David then speaks to his Lord, this king, in verse 2. He says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So this king, and and it's using a lot of symbolic, uh, somewhat flowery language to describe these things, but it's a picture of the king's victory over his enemies and the support of God's people coming and serving him and ruling with God's own power. The scepter that the king wields comes from God's hand. It's God's strength by which this king will establish his power. And But you keep reading the psalm and you get to verse 4 and there's this you know, sharp turn in it and you find out that this king is not just a king, he's also a priest. So verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you remember the story of Melchizedek back in Genesis 14, this guy shows up out of nowhere for Abraham as a priest and a king and so on. There was a pattern there that this future king is going to pick up as both a priest and a king. That's pretty unique. And through him, God will establish justice for all people. So verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This picture of the victory and justice of God. Everything that's wrong in this world being brought to judgment and so that everything can be made right. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're looking for God's Messiah according to Scripture. Though it's questionable if they ever would have been willing to give up control. But they didn't know the Scriptures well enough to recognize them when they saw him. When they were staring them in the face. They had a high view of Scripture, but a low view of God's Messiah. A high view of Scripture, but a very low view of God's Messiah. Low expectations. But God's Messiah is big. Jesus is big. 
This psalm shows us that he's bigger than any mere human. It gives us a sweeping portrait of his majesty and his authority and his sufficiency and even his divinity as one who sits at the right hand of God in heaven. So David's son, yes, he is David's son. He's fully human so that he can be our representative. But he's more than that. He's also God's son, fully God, so that he can be our savior. Romans 1, 4, 3 and 4 puts it uh, like this. It says how Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's both and. Jesus is big. He's the perfect teacher of God's word, but he's also the very fulfillment of God's word. As our king, he keeps the law for us perfectly. This law of love that he laid out, he keeps that perfectly everywhere that we fail. He's our representative before the Father. Yet as our priest, he's king and priest, as our priest, he takes the cost of our failures on himself and offers himself before the Father as a perfect sacrifice. He's the king who represents us. He's the priest who cleanses us. And it's only through a perfect Savior like that that imperfect sinners like us can be reconciled to God. So if you think back to what Jesus was saying in verses 37 to 39, this this comprehensive picture of what it means to be God's people, to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as, we, as ourselves. Who among us can actually say, yeah, nailed that, you know. Who, who among us can, can actually say, that's exactly what my life looks like day in and day out. Now, I do think that, that many among us can, can say that this is the general character and shape of my life. I have seen and experienced that kind of love from many of you as we've interacted. God is at work among us. But none of us gets this perfect. There are, there are no experts in this room when it comes to the law of love, which is a problem if we're looking solely at that law. As James 2.10 sums it up quite soberly, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. God has this moral vision for his people an ethical standard, and yet we all fall miserably short of it in different ways. And if, if you fall short of it, that means you also fall under God's wrath, his holy anger against sin and disobedience. So we are big sinners. We need an even bigger Savior. And that's who Jesus is. Listen to Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 14. And I want you, as I read them, to to be thinking about Psalm 110 and to hear that in the background of Hebrews 10, okay? And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That was the Old Testament legal system uh, of the temple court. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. To hear Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now I want you to look carefully at that last verse, verse 14 there. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. It is finished. That's past tense there. The law's demand has been met for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin has been fully atoned for. His righteousness has been credited to us. We are justified before God. We are declared not guilty and therefore welcomed into his family. The penalty of our sin has been canceled on the basis of Christ's work and there's nothing we need add to it for our acceptance before God. Our acceptance is not based on our obedience to the law. It's based on Christ's obedience in our place. It is finished for all who belong to Christ. Past tense. But the verse continues. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made holy. So our status before God is secure. It's based on what Christ has done for us. But we are not yet complete. We're still growing and being changed into the likeness of Christ. We're still repenting of sin. We're still being made holy as his children and as his servants. As long as we live out our days in this fallen world, waiting for the glory of the resurrection to come, we will continue being made holy, growing, learning how to love God and to love neighbor. When Jesus fulfilled the law for us, he didn't, God didn't set aside his standard. The gospel doesn't free us from the responsibility to obey. It frees us for the responsibility to obey. It frees us for that responsibility. Paul puts it in Galatians 5. For, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, self-centered, you know, sin type stuff. But instead, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We were set free in order to obey And Christ is what makes that possible. Christ is what makes that possible. He strengthens us by his spirit for that love and obedience. And it's not something we do as experts. None of us have it all together. It's something we do as children who've been changed by the gospel. That's how we offer our obedience to him. And then Jesus takes our feeble offerings sanctifies them by his blood to make them perfect and acceptable before the Father. On the wall in my office, I have several priceless works of art. 
Don't worry, I didn't buy them with church funds or anything like that. Um, in fact, I didn't buy them at all. They were all gifts. Uh, now, none of them are, are world-renowned artists per se, but I wouldn't sell any of them for all the money in the world. They were made by my children. And they are precious and priceless, every one of them. So it is with every act of love and obedience that we offer to God in Jesus, including our love for neighbors. It may not always look like much to us when we're offering it to God. It might not look like much to the world. But they are masterpieces to the Father, cleansed and sanctified by Christ and accepted with love. That's the obedience we offer God in Jesus. Because he's not only the perfect teacher of the law, he's the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He's David's son and God's son. Our king and our great high priest who ever lives and pleads for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are holy. That in your love you have not made yourself less than you are. You are beautiful in majesty. You are unapproachable in your splendor. And yet through Jesus you have come down in love to make yourself known to weak and feeble sinners. Lord, thank you that Christ is enough. Thank you that it's okay that we're not experts on this stuff, that we mess up and we make mistakes and we don't have it all together. Because Jesus does, and Jesus has us if we trust in him. And thank you that he's not content just to save us as we are, but to change us to what he wants us to be to sanctify us by the Spirit, to grow us day and day, and that as a community of faith, we get to increasingly enjoy that love and transformation in our relationships, even as we bear witness to your love to those around us. Lord, would you do that among us? Would you fill our hearts with this love that God, that you have for us, Lord, that we might offer it back to you, in praise, and offer it out to others in mercy. Lord, thank you that Jesus is our great high priest and our faithful king. We pray that you, by your your grace and by his blood, would take every feeble attempt at obedience, that you would sanctify it and make it lovely through Jesus, just as you do for your children. And Lord, may even our our songs and our prayers the rest of this morning be offered in such a way to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.